0: And welcome to For What It's Worth. I'm Evan Lucas, Chief Market Strategist at Investment. Joining me in the hot seat this week is once again our Editor-in-Chief, Alan Collar. So, Alan, I really want to have a chat this week, and probably what's been going over the last month. In fact, even further back than that, about the real divergence that's going on in what you and I love to talk about, which is difference between asset classes, and particularly the bond and the equity market. Uh, for those of you out there, you know why we look at it quite closely. Clearly, the bond market is a, is a way of evaluating sort of a risk off idea. Equities are a risk on. Your opinion right now? I'm going to ask you twofolds to it. So, your opinion of the theory or basically the mechanism or, you know, warning light that is the US bond market with the three-month, 10-year differential dropping to below negative, so inverting, and the impact or the, you know, the forecasting that has on a recession. And then here in Australia, the fact that the Aussie 10-year got to 1.77 at the lowest, it's at 1.8 now, but they are clearly showing signs that equity markets are either wrong or right or the bond market is either wrong or right. What's your opinion?
1: Um, Well, it's possible (laughs) that they're both right because um, there's always a lag and the bond market, uh, history tells you that the bond market uh, acts earlier uh, than the equity market. The equity market takes longer to respond to um, economic signals than the bond market does. I don't know quite why that is, but it's simply the case. And so um, the the US is interesting because um, if you go back to 1955, um, the yield curve inversion, which is where the long-term rate goes under the the short-term rate, has actually preceded uh, every recession except one, mm. which was 1966, and um, the average lag between the in- yield curve inversion and the recession is 15 months. Now, uh, the other thing that happens usually, this is from history, is that the equity market continues to barrel along for a while, maybe another six months to nine months and tends to, uh, precede, tends to correct before a recession. Um, but not, uh, you know, like nine months or six months before a recession. So, um, it just takes the, uh, just takes the equity market a bit longer. Um, the other thing is I'm looking at a, I'm just staring at a graph at the moment of the, um, uh, the all ordinaries index and the 10 year bond yield in Australia. And, um, they you know they go in different directions the trend for the market over the past 10 years as i'm looking at it, is obviously generally up uh and ever since for, you know, over the past 10 years the uh, the 10 year bond yield has been going down there are times when when the bond yield goes up and the market goes up but not that often to be honest i mean most of the time they do go in different directions um and we've seen that we've seen that in the past uh, few weeks
0: yeah that that's that's the whole idea, isn't it? Is this is something that history is hard to sort of point to because it's 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 quite rare to see both markets moving up. I mean, what catches my attention also around it is that we talked about this in 2012 through to about 2015. What was you know called the most crowded trade we'd seen in decades in everybody piling into the bond market and particularly overseas. It's coming back. I mean, you can see it in Germany. You can see it to some extent also in the UK, which is quite interesting. The interesting part around this is that people are clearly doing this because they believe or see economic slowdown. That's the theory, obviously. The interesting point looking at the Australian market, and I'm looking at it as well, is that if you look at where the money is going, it's, it's quite interesting. It's the sort of three out to as far as the eight-year. And the eight-year, don't forget, all, all Australian sovereign bond is issued at 100 Aussie dollars for face value. So that's what you get. You buy the bond for and then you get your coupon, Some of these are now being sold at $132 um, on the market, and that just shows you how much money is flowing in there. So it's it's quite interesting to sort of sit here and go, well – there is things that have certainly driven risk on. We know that the Federal Reserve has backed away from its you know, rate hike cycle. It's allowed risk on trading. We know that the US-China trade relations is certainly getting, adverted commas, better. Uh, and that's also driven China. I mean, China just saw in the last quarter the CSI 300 as up 28.5% basically after having a turret 2018. So, Risk is on, but the bond market is saying it's off. I'm with you. I actually think the bond market's probably going to foretell what might happen at the back end of this year, and and that in itself is is quite interesting and and certainly where it is. The next part of that question, though, for you, Alan, is, okay, if you were right now looking at where the Aussie market is, do you see it as an exciting prospect or do you get a little bit nervous by the fact that it's probably, again, in my eyes, overvalued?
1: Well, look, I think um – I actually think that um, just just on the direction of the two markets. I mean, what's going on at the moment is the equity market is tending to focus on the cure, and the bond market is looking at the disease. <laughs> the cure, the cure being central bank uh, intervention. Yes. So the the equity market for a while now um, has been entirely driven by uh, what the Fed's doing, and to some extent by the RBA, but mostly the Fed, mm. um, the Federal Reserve. Um, the the bond market is focusing on the economy. I mean, personally, I think that um, you'd be completely wrong to um, to bet that there's going to be a recession either in Australia or America. Um, I think most likely, the most likely thing, I well, it's not 100% likely, but it's more likely than not, uh, is that we end up with, you know, a long period of um, subpar growth, 2%, maybe 2.5% growth, um, which is going to keep inflation down um, and, uh, you know, it's it's going to keep the uh, central bank on the sidelines. So, I mean, I, so therefore, what does that mean for the equity market? I reckon it means that the equity market's going to be okay, that it's a stock picker's market. Um, it isn't going to be a market that's going to uh, boom uh, on its own, that you can just kind of ride the ride the market. But, but it's also, there's no reason to think there's going to be an, a recession-linked crash. Um, the market is a bit expensive, that's true, which means that, you know, you just can't, Sort of buy everything, can not buy the index and just hang on. Uh, you've got to think about what you're buying. Um, and uh, the bond market, well, you know, this bond market's gone crazy. I mean, really, the, the, these bo- these bond yields are uh, uh, that that bond yield of one point seven you mentioned before was the lowest in history. I mean, yeah. it's no- bond yields have never been this low. It's incredible. I mean, it, it, this is the sort of bond yield you'd get before a depression. But so, so what the hell's going on, really? The answer – what's going on, it seems to me, is that um, is the bond market's gone mad, I reckon. Yeah, I agree. It's gone crazy.
0: It's gone absolutely mental. Uh, the other thing about this, and getting back to probably the question before I had around, you know, the – the forecasting of a recession, and I'm with you 100% on what you said around the historical side of it. There are some technical points that people point out that are slightly different this time. And again, I'll put out there these people are absolutely bulls. believe the world is just going up and up and up. So do, do have that as a caveat. But they do point to the fact that you've got – a scenario we've realistically never seen in history where the US Federal Reserve has been for almost a decade interfering with the normal transactions of the bond market. So they're either doing quantitative easing and therefore, you know, supporting the market or at the moment, which they're about to finish, actually doing slightly quantitative tightening and and running off their balance sheet. So there has been that. There's also been no major new issuances in the states for about six months. So there is another argument that some people are saying is that the actual volume in the market isn't as high as it normally is. So that in itself is also creating a little bit of a distortion. Uh, The other part of it that's also catching my attention is that the US is still going incredibly strong. If you look at non-farm payrolls on Friday, they were okay, but in terms of okay, that's compared to the last three years where they've been absolutely powering ahead. Wealth creation in the States is still pretty strong. And then you come back here, and this is – what I think we'll start bringing on to the, the next sort of topic that I want to look at is the discrepancy that's happening in the states between wage growth and, and employment isn't as large as what's happening here. So if you look here, and that's probably the next part, leading into what's likely to happen sometime in the next week and a half, which is the federal election, and this whole thing around a living wage and what a wage is and the difference between Asset growth and wage growth over the last couple of years or the last decade has certainly been a problem, particularly between generations. So, Alan, probably to you, you were at the lockup. I had a listen to the Money Cafe and what you had to say there. The interesting thing I want to sort of ask you now is that do you see a way that wages in this country will, A, move up, and then, B, can you also see a scenario where the generation between the ages of probably 20 and 45 can actually start to benefit from the changes that have been made in the last decade?
1: Oh, uh, well, um, <laughs> uh, so it looks like the Labor Party's going to legislate for a higher minimum wage, which will obviously flow through, so that'll probably increase wages. Um, but I do think that the the marketplace pressure on wages is still to suppress them. Um, there's... the. Uh, uh, the labour force workers have lost bargaining power. I can't see that coming back in a hurry. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, there's going to be some upper pressure, obviously, from the Labour Party. Maybe the Labour Party will re empower unions, uh, which, will, which will address one of the things that's uh, sapped workers' bargaining power. Uh, which is the destruction of unions? Maybe I mean it's a bit hard to know um, on that score. But the other things, the technology, automation, uh, globalization—that's not coming to an end. Um, I just can't see. Um, I can't see any blowout in wages. You know, I mean, maybe wages growth will, will kick up to two and a half, three percent at some point. Um, just so- on that
0: point there, that you just sort of raised around it, globalization. I think that's the really good part. So I'll probably take and pick you up on that. Is that how does Australia? over the next decade two decades actually start to accept that globalization is not only here it's well established how do we continue to actually evolve in that market because i think that is actually probably the way to answer the question is that wages and employment growth is significantly and structurally changed by globalization how how do we actually sort of continue to be a prosperous nation but fit into that globalization story
1: well it's a big question isn't it i mean it's uh you know, we've basically given up, given up on manufacturing. Um, um, well, look, I, you know, I think um, the problem is simply that uh, it's hard to compete. Um, so, uh, does that mean, I mean we, we go down speak.
0: services? Does that mean we go towards high in manufacturing like health, education is another side of it as well. Do we do we start and start to become a specialised nation like sort of what Singapore does, or do we?
1: Well, that's already but that's already happening, um, Evan. I mean, the, uh, the biggest improvements, biggest increases in employment over the last few years have been health and education, uh, with health way out in front, and that's going to continue. That's for sure. I mean, with the NDIs. Um, uh, the new policy of the Labor Party to ensure that people don't pay for cancer. Um, uh, so there's going to be... I mean, I, I think that the... the. the uh, well, I wrote in the overview on Saturday that um, I can't see how they can possibly stay at cancer. I mean, how can it be possible? How can it be the case that, um, you know, you're relieved at being diagnosed with cancer because that's not going to send you broke anymore? Uh, whereas if you've got something else... You still go broke. Mm-hmm. I mean, that can't be that can't be uh, allowed to continue. So, um, what the Labor Party has begun is a huge increase in fun- in funding of healthcare. It seems to me, um, a huge increase, and so that's going to lead to a, a massive increase in health spending. Uh, so, the question is, where's the money going to come from? Um, uh, that's a very interesting <laughs> question, I guess. I mean, uh, tourism, education, exports um continuing experts of commodities um that's what it's really all about and i suppose at some point um a recovery in the housing market but that's probably a a few years off yeah and then picking
0: up on that question on a short-term basis i know we've sort of talked about this before around you know where's the money coming from we know around the changes to the franking credit sort of movement over the next sort of two years we know that the Labor Party's now put a date around the changes to negative gearing being January 1st next year if they get in which looks very very likely the next part of it and probably you know another question that we've been receiving this week is looking at the other side is what the Liberal Party proposed during the budget speech which was looking at increasing the the super contribution age um, my question and the reason it's sort of sort of made me sit up and ask the question that they're moving it and thinking about moving it towards 66 that you can continue to attribute money to your super fund is that is gearing towards the idea that over the next two to three to four decades retirement is clearly going to be with a 70 handle. You're either going to be 70, one, two, three, sometime in the future. And therefore, can the government actually sustain a scenario where they're allowing people to throw money into super at a much better tax rate uh, than they obviously currently do outside of that retire, you know, transition to retirement phase. Do you see the Labor Party going with that or do you see them not, tri- or even trimming it, not going with it? How do you sort of see that from what you saw last week?
1: Well, that but that's just reality really. I mean, the, 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 um you know, uh, life expectancy is continuing to increase. We're all living – you know, my mum's in her 90s now. I mean, everyone's living a long time. If you retire at 65, you've got a long time ahead of you. You're going to run out of money for sure. So, uh, you know, I think you're right that that uh, that, that um, uh, uh, paying money in a super for longer is just simply the reality and I can't see the Labor Party um, – uh, getting around that so it's
0: a chicken and egg scenario there isn't it is that obviously part of that is to they are looking at particularly self-managed uh, funded retirees and the franking credit changes etc cetera, etc cetera, to try and recuperate some of the revenue that they're losing from these tax breaks push pull or, or just something they're just going to have to accept that that's how it's going to go
1: well look i i mean i think what we what we're talking about here really is um continuing pressure in a number of ways on uh, on the tax base mm. i mean i think that the proposition that australia can continue to ret- you know hold taxation at 23.9% of gdp probably is going to end i mean i don't think that's possible um, and I, you know i think that y- we're going to have to start looking at the scandinavian model which is not too bad i mean it's not as if they're all falling apart in scandinavia but they've, uh, they've got taxation rates of uh, 40% plus uh, of GDP, well, um, uh, that's kind of seems to be working.
0: Let's do it. Sell that though to the electorate is incredibly hard. To all of a sudden see a taxation level of that space. I mean, because
1: yeah, but there's no alternative. I mean, you know, if, if you want if you want to have proper retirement, you want to have proper healthcare, and education system. There's no alternative. I well, think.
0: then that's the, obviously the next part of it. Is that what do, you, do the the argument that obviously comes from that is that. Or do we have to give up one part of that overall sort of government safety net structure to be able to survive? Now, I would argue that healthcare is probably well and truly the most important thing going forward. So you therefore look at, you know, the way that retirement is funded, pension obviously being the the big question about how that looks in two to three decades' time. And I I personally don't believe either side of the party is looking at how that reforms. Originally, that's what the Keating era superannuation was designed to do, it just hasn't been done well and there's now issues with the rorts around it, is that has to be the pickup surely, in the future. Or, as you said, yeah, you yeah, go down the super side, you go down the 40% taxation side, that that will be very hard to sell to the electorate, I would have argued.
1: Especially people your age, yeah. Evan, who you'll be going, hey, no, wait a minute, um, why should we have to pay for all of you old codgers in your retirement? And That's fair enough. I think there is a really big intergenerational issue there. Um, I don't know what the answer is, honestly. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's simply a, a really big problem. Yeah. I, I don't have the answer. I wish I did.
0: Yeah, and, and look, neither neither do I. But w- the interesting question around it is that it's – this is, th- from my perspective, and you can hear it already in the talk and in, in the media, is that this is – we're leading to an election where it's the first time in a very, very long or even living memory, maybe even back as far as the wars, where – the intergenerational difference between what's been pitched to them is the largest it's ever been. Do you look after the self-funded and the pension phase retiree person? Or do you look at the next generation and what they will have to pay up before they get to retirement and the taxation issue they're going to go have to go through over the next two to three decades? Who do you reform to and who do you pitch to? And that I think yeah. is going to be a very interesting thing over the coming election. Is is that clearly who do you sweeten to? Is it that older generation or the younger generation. I think already you're starting to see it. It's along traditional lines. The the Liberal Party is probably going towards that slightly older group and the Labor Party is going towards the slightly younger. It's just how that actually plans out. And I I know the demographers are going to absolutely love that on election night, actually paying attention to where the swings and what age group demographics actually picked up what.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? I suppose the the, uh, Labor Party's policy of um, banning cash refunds for franking credits is a part of that. I mean, that's kind of taking uh, taking money off the older folks and presumably they'll give it to younger people
0: like you. <laughs> yeah, well again, we'll see that in the future. But <laughs> we will indeed. Alan, I think that's been a really good session today. Thank you so much for joining me again on, on for what it's worth. thank you. That's all for this week. For all of your investment needs, please head to investmart.com.au. Where you'll find this episode and more, Alan Coller's weekend briefing, thoughts from Australia's best financial commentators, all day, every day. InvestMart, let's make wealth happen. <music>